welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. In this episode, I was joined by Andrew Millison. His extensive work as a videographer documenting innovative water systems internationally and developing compelling content for Oregon State University's permaculture design course have made his YouTube channel invaluable to anyone seeking insights into the workings of water. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Song and Plants. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name's Andrew Millison, and primarily I'm an instructor at Oregon State University where I teach permaculture. I have been teaching permaculture for over 20 years, and I first studied permaculture over 25 years ago. I've lived in a lot of different climate zones. I grew up on the temperate east coast in Philadelphia. I've lived in Arizona. I spent 14 years there in the high desert. It's kind of where I first learned about permaculture and started studying water systems. And then for the last 14 years, I've been here in Corvallis, Oregon, which is a maritime temperate area here in the Willamette Valley in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And in recent years, I've done a lot of traveling documenting different permaculture and water sites all over the world, including in India and in Mexico and in Egypt. I just got back from Hawaii documenting the Ahupua'a, the Hawaiian indigenous watershed scale agricultural system. So I guess to some degree, I'm a bit of a, of a storyteller now where a lot of my work is kind of focusing on video. And I'm really happy to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you. What got you interested in water systems? Well, you know, water is the foundation of design, of permaculture design, regenerative land design. Water is the basis of any specific design where, you know, it comprises the bones of the system. So you can't put the other layers of a design on until you have the basis, the foundation of water. So from water, typically, then we put on pathways, then we put on trees and other perennial plantings, then we create structures and land subdivisions and all these kinds of things. But the natural boundaries of the landscape are the drainage basins and the ridges and hills that surround those drainage basins. And so there's this logic, this innate logic in water. And when you understand how water functions with the ecology, when you understand how water moves through landscapes and determines different soil types and determines what types of vegetation grow and all this stuff, it's like water is, it's the thing that binds everything. It's like the connecting tissue of the ecosystem. And so I feel like all the other layers of permaculture design are really important, but until you understand the role of water and how to properly design for water, then you can't really do a good job designing whole systems. So I kind of make it my focus to teach mostly about water because I feel like it's providing people with a good foundation in order to construct different 
regenerative types of systems in, in all different contexts. So using that basis, I suppose that would even go across different climates if you're using topography and sort of land shape to understand water. But what innovative techniques have you seen in your travels where people have climate challenges? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously deserts and dry lands are the first place that you know, when we think of water and we think of really needing to have water design, I'll give one example. I also do design work for clients. And so I had a design project, an eco-village design in the Western desert of Egypt. And this is the Sahara desert where like literally this area has not had measurable rainfall in 13 years. I mean, it's an extraordinarily dry climate where it's difficult to even design for rainwater runoff because the dominant pattern in the landscape is actually blowing sand and sand dunes, which obscures the water flow pattern. And basically this whole area, it's an area of about 80,000 people in this oasis, is all living off of like ancient groundwater that was deposited there in the ground during an era when the whole climate was much wetter in North Africa in the Sahara desert area. So, you know, seeing extremes like that, where you're not even designing for rainfall necessarily, but you're designing for the efficient use of a non-renewable resource. I mean, that's kind of one extreme level, but then, you know, on the other side of extremes, are extremely wet areas, right? And so I also had the fortune of visiting, I guess it was just earlier this year, the Chinampa system of Mexico City, which is the last vestiges of the ancient Aztec agricultural system built in the basin of Mexico City. It's called the Valley of Mexico, Valle de Mexico. It's like a giant crater, basically. So you've got all these mountains ringing this high elevation valley and all the water for thousands and thousands and thousands of years drained down and formed this big shallow lake in the bottom of this crater. And that's where the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan was developed there, which after the Spanish came and conquered the Aztecs, that became the basin of Mexico City. And so, you know, this is an example where, like, how do you take an aquatic system, a system that's completely a wet area, and turn it into something that is both productive and beneficial for the ecosystem, as well as can handle the level of pollution that you get in a really wet area at the bottom of a system where everything filters down to that bottom area. So the water design, I mean, it's really like, it's really fascinatingly diverse in all of these different extreme types of environments. And I was saying in the introduction, I just returned, we're filming a video in Hawaii with the nation of Hawaii. It's the sovereign indigenous nation. It's a group of native Hawaiians who got a piece of land through protest from the government about 30 years ago, and now they are actively restoring their traditional 
watershed scale system, the amazing thing that I learned there is, you know, in their system for the farmer, this is a very wet area, by the way, this is the wet side of Oahu. So this is an area that is, you know, it's basically the wet tropics. It barely has a dry season there. It's incredibly lush, lots of flowing waters, waterfalls, right? And traditionally they grew taro and the, the farmer from this system, they weren't worried about their water supply coming into their system. They were most worried about what they were returning back into the system after bringing the water in and flooding their taro patches and growing their crops there. They were most concerned that they were returning a clean and adequate amount of water back into the stream for downstream users to use. So it was like, like a sacred responsibility to being a part of the total water cycle. And so that was really something that I feel like we should all actually, that's a perspective I feel like we should all really be adopting. Absolutely. What yeah. methods were they using to purify the water? I mean, ideally the water wasn't dirty from the start, right? In the native system, they're bringing the water out of the stream. And I mean, their the crop, the taro is, is a wetland crop. And so when you have a taro field that is full, I mean, I, I went to these existing large taro fields over in Kauai and you know the whole basin is like one solid mass of taro with these huge leaves and so I think the crop itself is doing a lot of filtration because it has a really extensive root system that is like permeating the whole basin and so part of it's like making it so okay when you're harvesting and you're disturbing the soil how are you going to keep silt-laden water for returning back into the stream. Because in their system, if you return silt-laden water back in the stream, you're actually not being responsible to the water cycle, and there will be negative effects throughout the system. Hmm. So there was a lot of just sort of vegetated ditches with a variety of plants. There was the taro patches themselves, and then there was trees along. So there's like sort of like the water is moving through a great diversity of plants before it returned back into the stream. I'm a little bit curious though, in the growing of taro, do they need to use pesticides or any other chemicals or is it a fairly resilient crop that doesn't need to have yeah. those sorts of yeah. interventions? Yeah, well, what I saw, I went to one area that was, that was actually like a larger taro growing area, which is actually very rare in Hawaii. They say the most expensive food in Hawaii is like the native foods there, which is, it's very sad actually, because that's the food that native people there's bodies are most positively responsive to. But taro came over with the canoes, basically they called it canoe food. So meaning that when the Polynesians basically arrived in Hawaii, taro was one of the things that they brought there. So. It's been grown there in that landscape for a long, long time and is very adapted there. And so the place that I went was was large scale. I mean, when I say large scale, I don't mean like thousands of acres large scale. I mean, like we went and saw, you know, in the neighborhood of like four to five acres of taro being grown, maybe bigger, which actually for Hawaii is actually a fairly large amount. They didn't use any pesticides. It was it was all organic. 
there's a lot of bird life that is interacting there in the tarot patches because you're basically creating these wetlands and the wetlands are full of the tarot plant, but then all the perimeter around there, there's lots of different plant species. So there really seemed like there was a supportive ecology and like lots of different birds landing in the different flooded fields. And there's enough of an intact ecosystem. That there's some like natural pest control there due to the diversity and, and different you know microclimates created. But the other example that would actually probably answer your question a little better was back to Mexico City. So the, the last vestiges of this Aztec flood-based agriculture system, where they built up these artificial peninsulas and islands within the shallow wetlands in order to grow crops on. But here in 2022, this is at the bottom of the Mexico City basin. So I mean, there's a lot of pollutants making their way down to this low area, especially because the poverty is so great that many people have been forced to basically squat on these kind of wetland areas that don't have proper like sanitation, right? As far as toilets. And so they created biofilters by building you might say gabions, which is a wire basket filled with rock, you know? So it's like a, a filter that water, in order to get into the canals where they actually pull their irrigation water from, they have to pass through these rock-filled wire baskets that are planted with aquatic plants. And so the water has to pass through like this filter of rock and plant roots in order to get into the sort of inner part of the canal where water is being pulled from. And so that's like some more like contemporary examples where I'm seeing water filtration integrated into traditional agricultural systems. To give a little bit of context, when they're building up those peninsulas, how do they keep them from eroding? How do they keep them intact since they've been there for so long? Yeah, the initial building process. And actually, like, if you watch the video, we made a little mini documentary. It's on my YouTube channel. It's called Chinampas of Mexico, Most Productive Agricultural System Ever? Question mark. And I have some pretty good diagrams on there where I actually sort of illustrate how these things are constructed. But basically, they take these willow branches, right, and they hammer them into the lake bed in the shape that they want their field to be in. And so these willow stakes are hammered down in, and then they weave other branches around, just kind of like you'd weave like a willow basket, right? In and out, in and out of these stakes. And so they create this framework. It's like a giant basket that's anchored into the lake bottom. And then they fill the inside of that basket in with brush and soil and lake mud and sort of like build up a big giant compost pile in there that will degrade over time. And they put a bunch of good like lake mud on the top that they can plant directly into. And then those willow stakes that they hammered in to the lake bed to make the perimeter of this basket 
they actually sprout, right? Because willow can just grow from cuttings. So they sprout and then they become like a living boundary and then they sprout branches, they sprout roots, and then the roots tie together the boundary of the planting area. And so that's how it becomes anchored is by these, it's like a awajote willows is a particular variety that they use there. That's the same variety that's been used since even pre-Aztec times. Wow. Yeah. And the biofilter is a newer addition to this system. Yeah. Are they particular about which plants they're putting into their biofilter to remove majority organic matter or is it all types of pollutants the main pollutants this particular like location well i'll step step back for a second and say at this point the whole system is actually fed by treated wastewater from a municipal wastewater treatment system okay right so as far as the city's concerned they're actually using this area as a way to take treated wastewater from the municipal system and then they flood it into the whole Chinampa area and then it recharges the groundwater and then they pull it out again for use for their municipal supply. So right now it's functioning like as a part of this larger scale water filtration from the whole city, right? Does that make sense? Can you kind of picture that? Yeah. So they're not really concerned with the pollutants from there, although I would say that there's plenty of things that we would talk about, like, I don't know, how are they filtering, like, birth control and antidepressants, you know, and that kind of thing that is difficult to actually filter out. But that aside, because I didn't really get into that, they basically consider that the water that's coming from the wastewater treatment plant as clean water, right? But it's the... The real problem is like fecal coliform, is like all of these squatters and just different housing that has grown up in the Chinampas with the poverty and the land pressure. So people are basically moving onto these Chinampas in areas and then like they're just either digging holes or whatever, like they don't have a sanitation system. So they're basically like pooping in the water for the most part. So that is the main pollutant that they are worried about with these biofilters for removal of the pollutants. And so, you know, as far as the plants that they're using, I had the fortune when I used to live in Arizona, we had a permaculture course that I did with the ECOSA Institute in Prescott, Arizona. And we had Dr. John Todd, who's the guy who invented the living machine, the eco machines, Ocean Arcs Institute. He's just like a total sort of legend and inventor and pioneer for wastewater treatment systems. And we had him come and do a few days of workshops with us in Arizona. And one thing that he said, because you know this is like a really, really common question, right? The really common question is like, what plants do you use, right? So we said, John, like, what plants do we use? And he said, go to your local wetlands. And the plants that you see in your local wetlands are actually gonna be the best plants to use because all wetland plants have natural filtration qualities because where do wetlands sit within the greater watershed pattern, right? Wetlands sit at the bottom 
So naturally, wetlands are getting animal carcasses and, you know, d dead animals and dead vegetation. I mean, everything from the ecosystem that's like dying and rotting finds its way down through the movement of water into wetlands. So wetlands are just naturally, all wetlands plants basically are naturally like purifying because of the nature of where you find them within the ecosystem. So he said, go and find your local species and as much of a diversity as you can, and that's the best place to start. So, you know, they had plants in these biofilters that look similar to a lot of the wetlands plants that we have around here, you know, different types of reeds and sedges and cattails and that kind of thing. But, you know, there was a lot of different types of plants that I guess they probably just stuck in whatever they could. To some degree, it's a little bit less scientific than you'd think about what plants to include as long as you go by the maximum diversity of what will grow in your climate, per se. And even like where we live in the wintertime, when plants die back, okay, there's not as much biological activity, but a lot of the filtration happens with the bacteria on plant roots and as the wastewater moves through those plant roots. So even when plants are dormant, there's still a lot of biological activity happening in the water. And so there is, you know, some degree of treatment happening even in the wintertime here, for example. You touched on a couple things that I'd love to delve into a little further. One is you mentioned the eco machine. Yeah. Would you mind explaining that just a little bit? Yeah, well, you know, John Todd basically came up with this concept of taking the idea that wetland plants are natural filters and creating artificial wetlands like in tanks in giant greenhouses depending like if the climate is really cold you could actually make an artificial environment where you have a big greenhouse over a series of wetland tanks and so the idea is that the wastewater comes in and that you have the different tanks that it goes into has like as drastically different conditions as you can make in a sense. So it's like anaerobic, aerobic, right? To try to have different types of organisms to break the bonds of pollutants and where the water goes through like shockingly different environments. Like I said, from anaerobic to aerobic would be the best example. And then it goes through this series of tanks that have subsequently like cleaner water. And by the time you get to the end, you actually have clean water. A lot of the systems that John Todd developed actually, there's actually species can actually migrate between the tanks. So you can have like areas where the overflow pipe from one of the tanks to the next could actually be a place where like snails and fish could actually move through. So you know, you might have it where the system gets shocked by some particular pollutant and the system might like retreat and sort of die back in the earlier tanks or you may have things like snails move to subsequently further tanks that are further from the pollutants. But then as that shock is mediated, bioremediated, then the organisms will find their way back into 
tanks that are closer to the source of the pollutant. So it's like creating this living system that has the ability to self-organize, taking maximum advantage of the filtration properties of wetland plants to filter water. If you look at John Todd stuff and Ocean Arcs Institute and eco machines and living machines, there's like all these crazy examples that are pretty mind-blowing actually of how this has been done at scale. Wow. And when you have, say, an anaerobic system, are you putting in the bacteria that, the anaerobic bacteria that you want, or are you just encouraging what's already present in the, in the water that's coming in? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't specifically know the answer to that because I've never like built the anaerobic part of the system. It's kind of like a septic tank. Like a septic tank basically digests solids and it's an anaerobic environment. And I think when you put a septic tank in, you don't necessarily charge the septic tank, but I would imagine that if you put in effective microorganisms, different types to sort of get it going, then that might be like a really good way to do it. So I don't really know the answer, but I could imagine that it would be beneficial to sort of charge it with different types of effective microorganisms. So for the aerobic and for the wetland, say when you're bringing the plants in, are you dealing with the organisms that are coming in on the plants or are you going to be bringing in snails and bringing in fish species or? Yeah, so we built one of these machines when I did the class with John Todd and we just went and like dug up clumps of plants from a local wetland area. And so, I mean, there's lots of organisms that are gonna come in there and especially if it's an outdoor system, then you're just naturally going to have like species are going to find their way in there. Mm -hmm. However, I could see also collecting specific organisms and putting them in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How many sort of basins are you dealing with generally in those sorts of systems? Well, you figure it out by how many days of treatment do you need for the type of pollution that the specific water sources that you're putting in there are. There's actually a video about this called Eco Machine from when I was a younger man there back in Arizona. You know, what we did was we actually did like a snail test where we took the water that we were trying to clean up from this old polluted well that was on my property. And um, we saw like, how long does it take to kill a snail? It's not like a very nice experiment to the snails, but it shows you how toxic is this water, basically. The water we were dealing with was not very dirty. I mean, it was, it was not bad. But basically, you know, what you would find out through testing is how many days of treatment, how long does the water need to pass through your system in order to be clean at the other end, whatever clean is, whatever metrics you're using at the other end, as far as how you're going to use that water. And then what is the rate that water is flowing through your system? So it's like if you're using, say, like 200 gallon totes or something like that as your units, and you have 200 gallons of water coming into your system per day, that it's going through one tote per day. And so if it takes five days of treatment to clean your water, then you would want five totes, which would total a thousand gallons of capacity. So that's like 
the basic metrics of how you figure out how many different tanks you're going to move the water through. And is this system used for gray water as well as black water? I wouldn't necessarily be like putting black water in like open tanks per se. I mean, okay, I've seen it done. So when I was in India, and I had have some of this documented in videos too, but when I went to Oroville, which is sort of like a eco city located on the coast of Tamil Nadu in Pondicherry, and it was founded by Sri Aurobindo like 50 years ago. It's a very well-known place. And they have like really, really excellent biological water treatment systems, like living machines like I'm talking about. But they're not like going through tanks per se. It's more of like an aesthetic sort of garden. It's not like what we think of just like, oh, one tank to the next, one tank to the next, because this is a warm climate, so they don't need any kind of greenhouse or anything like that. And it's like actually this beautiful water garden. But they actually, you know, first they set all the solids out in a regular septic tank. So it's like basically a regular septic tank has anaerobic decomposition, anaerobic treatment. And then they actually moved the water. They pumped it into this like crazy vortex machine. Inside, it's just this glass tower, like it's see-through. And then they're making this crazy vortex. It looks like a like a tornado of water in this vortex. So they're running it through there. And then they're running it into these planted big sort of water gardens. And then they're pumping it up and running it through flow forms. If you know flow forms that takes the water and moves it in this figure eight pattern, oxygenating it and enlivening it. And then it's flowing back down into this different water garden. And then at the end, they're pumping it out and using it to water their landscape. So it's not like they all look like tanks per se, but that's where I saw black water and it didn't smell. But you know, like in the US, I would think, okay, I wouldn't just be putting black water into this kind of situation. However, John Todd has lots of examples where he does do black water. He had the whole town of Harwich, Connecticut. He had an eco machine, and I'm not sure what came of that. This is from his historic archives of his projects, where I think they were treating like 80,000 gallons of black water per day in this system. So certainly gray water is safer yeah. to treat in this type of thing, just because it's less, you know, black water is just a more toxic medium. Certainly. Yeah. With the vortex part of that previous system, was that to aerate the water or what yeah. was the purpose of that? It was aeration, but it was deeper than that. It was some sort of repatterning. Oroville actually has a video where they explain their systems a little bit more, but I got to tell you, I never actually really understood the physics of this vortex machine and how it was actually cleaning the water. I can't tell you what it was. What I can tell you is, is that Oroville has been researching this stuff for 50 years, and if they're using it as an essential part of their system, then it must have some sort of powerful properties. But I couldn't tell you exactly how that works. And in some of the later ponds, did they have fish? Oh, yeah, definitely. Cool. It didn't take long for the water to, to get where their wetland systems were very vibrant and alive with lots of diversity of plants and different organisms and insects. And, you know, I definitely saw fish. And of course, things like frogs just migrate all amongst the different 
tanks and stuff. Or I wouldn't even call them tanks. They were more like water gardens. It's very beautiful. Are there any other examples of sort of constructed w- wetlands that you have observed when you've been traveling around? I mean, some of the most simple stuff are just reed beds. And this is the most common thing that you'll see because it's way, like there's no moving parts. You just have a sealed area, like a sealed sort of bed that's filled with gravel and rock and such that's planted with aquatic plants. And then the water is moved through that system, through the roots of the plants. But because it's filled with gravel, the water is not exposed to the surface. And so it just passively moves through this planted reed bed basically and comes out the other side clean it seems way like lower risk to me than some of this other stuff because the water's not exposed to the surface at all everything's happening subsurface and that's more common and more bomb proof than some of these more complicated things that i'm explaining to you another quick question about your travels are there other innovative or inspirational water management projects that you've witnessed abroad? Yeah, big time. A lot of it has to do with harvesting water in the landscape, basically rebuilding water tables. So I've seen a lot of things in different places, but you know, India, like what you see in India, the scale of some of the water harvesting and water table regeneration projects is truly mind-blowing. Your video series on that is fantastic. I highly recommend checking out that video series. Thank you. Yeah, it's called India's Water Revolution. And the first two videos are with the Pani Foundation. I'm actually going back to India on December 21st. I'm going to stay for two months. And I'm going back with the Pani Foundation. I'm going to spend four days traveling. We're going to go to four different villages there. The Pani Foundation, basically, it was founded by this Bollywood star Amir Khan who's like super famous right he's like in America you'd think of him as like Will Smith or Tom Cruise or someone who's just like a superstar who's been in tons and tons of movies so this guy's really really famous really really great guy really concerned about social welfare and ecology and everything and so um, they founded this contest between villages where the villages compete to see who could install the most amount of water harvesting structures in a 45-day period. And so from 2016 is when they started this contest, they've had something like 8,000 villages compete. And so, I mean, these villages get super into it and they throw everything they have, everybody they have into digging contour trenches and infiltration basins and um, all these different types of structures throughout their watershed. Now, you know, the cool thing about villages in India is they're old, they're ancient villages. So the village boundaries, the boundaries of their land correspond to watershed boundaries typically. So if a village is like, okay, we're going to restore our land, they're actually restoring the watershed basin because naturally they divided the landscape management units, village units on the ridges and the hilltops and everything like that, because that's just the sort of common sense way to do it. So you get these villages of say 2000 people and they throw everything they have 
mostly by hand, although some of them also were able to get like heavy equipment like excavators out there, building retention basins, contour trenches, ponds, check dams, gabion structures, soakage pits, you know, like this whole network all throughout the watershed, 45 days, and then the monsoons come, okay, and all this rain pours down, it fills up all of their water harvesting structures, and then that very season, the water table regenerates. They did all the work in 45 days, and because of the climate there, because in India you have this very long, extended, very dry season, but then you have a short and very wet monsoon season, literally they built their water tables in one season, their wells came back. And then wait another year and another year, another year, you know, five years down the line, there's just like springs popping up everywhere. The farmers are growing multiple crops in a year instead of one. People are like building new houses and like fixing the village up. The prosperity that happens from just this level of effort is pretty unbelievable. And when I go back in December, they actually have another phase to the competition because they had so many villages. They had like at least a thousand villages that completely fixed their water problem. That basically went from like being water depleted to being water rich forever because they changed the very nature of the hydrology in their watershed basin. So they've permanently built up their water table that every time it rains, it just recharges again and again. And so now it's called the Farmer's Cup where they're seeing which farmers group, they formed all these farmers groups, can actually do the best organic food production. And that's what they're competing now. So it's really like, when you look at that scale, you're like, that's the scale we need in order to fix this planet here. And can some of these models also apply to city context? You're not going to be working the land the same way, but there's water issues in the cities in a huge way. Yeah, totally. And, you know, cities, I mean, cities are very water shedding structures, meaning there's like all these roads, impermeable surfaces, driveways and buildings. Typically, the engineering of a city is that the water is just shunted from where it falls into whatever the drainage ditch or riverbed, whatever, as quickly as possible. And so, you know, in a city strategy, you're talking about many, 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 many small-scale water infiltration structures. One great example is the work of Brad Lancaster down in Tucson, Arizona, doing street-side water harvesting basins. So every time it rains, the water from the roads go and pull up in these basins that are then planted with native food-producing trees. The trees grow up and they provide habitat and shade and help with the heat island effect and food as well. And then the water infiltrates. I've toured that very extensively with Brad as well. At a certain point, all of these small structures added up together Right, create this whole matrix of small scale water harvesting structures in the same way like that the India stuff, you know, all these little structures added together. So in cities, you can actually restore the subsurface water table and help to grow habitat and food producing trees in cities as well. There's a project I'd like to visit when I go back to India this next time in Bangalore, where they have these infiltration wells 
right? They call them dry wells. I did do a video about this in Chennai, but not at the scale that's happening in Bangalore. But apparently there's this one person or organization that's put in like tens of thousands of these soakage wells, which are basically like you dig a shaft down into the ground, you fill it with rock, and you divert runoff into it. So every time it rains, instead of the runoff shunting away, like I said, into like dry riverbeds and such, it soaks into the ground to help build that subsurface water table. And we see that also in Portland, Oregon with the green streets. They have all these street side water harvesting basins there as well, all over the city that are helping to keep the water from just running right into the Columbia River and the Willamette River, cleans the water so the pollution gets filtered through plants or through soil before it ends up in the water courses. So yeah, there's lots and lots of examples like that. And so you've mentioned a couple, but what are some of the other wetland or water catchment or water filtration projects that you'd really love to visit? Yeah, let's see. I've mentioned definitely like some of my favorites for sure. Uh, okay, well, I'll tell you where I'm going. When I go to India, I'm going to actually the things that I really want to visit, right? One of them is the work of Dr. Rajendra Singh in Rajasthan, where his organization worked with villagers to restore their traditional water catchment ponds, crescent-shaped ponds called johads. And they began to restore these johads in order to bring just local water supply back for animal husbandry and agriculture. And they started restoring these, restoring these, building these johads one after another. Suddenly, after, I think it was eight years. I need to look back at my notes. It was five years, eight years, something like that. The Arvari River actually started flowing again after all of these ponds had been put into place. It built up, it slowed the water moving through the system so much because previously they were on like this sort of drought flood cycle where the monsoons would come, gully washers, everything floods, the water course, and then boom, all that water moves through and it's drought again. But here, they slowed the flow, they moderated the flow of the water through the system through all these traditional catchment ponds that were kind of like leaky ponds, right? Mm -hmm. And they actually brought back this river to a perennially flowing river that had been like dead for at least 50 years, had only been a monsoon gushing river and then a drought river. So that's one that's really an amazing project I'm going to go visit. Another project that I'm going to visit is in an even drier part of Rajasthan, in the area of Jodhpur. Jodhpur is, it's analogous to like Phoenix, Arizona, but hotter. Hotter and drier for a longer period of time, but when they do get the monsoons, they can actually get more rainfall. So it's like 10 months out of the year, it's like scorchingly dry, incredibly hot. This is the Tar Desert. It's the most densely inhabited desert on the planet. 25 million people live in this desert and basically practice subsistence agriculture there. And there's an organization that's been working since the early 80s called Gravis Jodhpur. And I visited this organization back in early 2018, and I'm going back again this time. And they have built water harvesting structures, really interesting types of structures that sort of merge the traditional practices there with like more contemporary water harvesting. So I'm going to get too far into the details. I'll just tell you one example is they have these rock hills 
around there, and then people are farming down in the lowland areas, kind of surrounded by like these rocky outcroppings and stuff. And so when you get a big monsoon rain on these rocky outcroppings, you get tons of water rushing off these rocks down into the farm fields, and then it's gone. So they built these rock walls at the base of these rocky structures that are simultaneously creating the boundaries of their farm. So it's kind of like what we think of as a fence, but they don't really have like fencing material there. So they build walls around their farms. So they build these rock walls, but the rock walls are perpendicular to the slope. So when the water comes rushing off these rocks, the force is broken by these rock walls. And then it goes, spills through the rock walls, releasing some of its force. And then they channel it into like, contour swales trenches and stuff where it's able to infiltrate into the ground and then all of their field boundaries as well are like built up berms so every field is a water harvesting basin itself this is traditional but this organization came back and kind of revived these practices and repaired and fixed and sort of came through with this like design concept of how the treat the total watershed. And so this is like a super dry area. If you go on Google Earth and you go to Jodhpur, India, which is J-O-D-H-P-U-R, and you look to the west, you can see this sort of like green haze on the land. And if you zoom in, all of that, the green that you see is basically irrigated fields. There are some ditches coming through there where there's water being diverted from far off places. So it's not all water harvesting, all the green you see, but a lot of it is all from water harvesting structures. My point is, these are projects that you can see from space. Like that's the scale. When I was there in 2018, they were saying that their water harvesting projects included about 1.3 million people were benefiting from their projects there. And so this is like small-scale projects cumulatively over decades, over large areas that cumulatively are like building water tables in whole regions and basically stabilizing the economy, the culture, the agricultural productivity there. What I'm curious about, though, is these projects that are dramatically changing the land, the water availability, where the water is when, how is that changing the ecology? Are they seeing a lot more aquatic animals? Yeah. Amphibians and birds? Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things, like when I went around with Dr. Abhinash Pohl of the Pani Foundation, and I have this in, in the videos there, he took me to this one place and he was just like, okay, just be quiet. And we just listened. And there's all these bird noises, you know, and you see these flocks, these different waterfowl and these cranes and flocks of birds going by. And you can hear like the buzzing of frogs and all this stuff. And there's little things flopping around the water. You can see little insects and things like that. And he's like, none of this was here. He's like, two years ago, three years ago, this wasn't here. He's like, this is actually bringing back the ecology. I mean, think about the ecosystem benefits of having a river that previously would just run during the monsoons and be like a sort of washout for the monsoon rains and then go dry versus having perennial water there. I mean, the ecosystem effects are dramatic and you're not even planning for that. That's just the sort of like side effects 
those are the side effects of rehydrating a watershed, even if you're just doing it for your own like agricultural food security. So are they seeing species that they hadn't seen in a very long time in these areas? I mean, I didn't get that like sort of documentation level of detail. I didn't really hear any stories of like, oh, this particular species showed back up. It's more, he was just like, the birds are back. You know, it's like. <laughs> Although I guess in the Mexican project, they are monitoring the biodiversity in the. Yeah. Did you watch that video? Yeah, I did. Yeah, right. So the Oshlodal salamander, right? Basically, the Oshlodal salamander is an endangered species. The Oshlodal salamander is a world-renowned amphibian. I think it's the most widely distributed salamander in the world or something like that that people grow in tanks in like aquariums yeah. because it has this incredible regenerating power like you can cut off its limbs like it grows back like it'll grow back like its brain like parts of its brain right in america people pronounce it axolotl so when i say oshlodal people don't know what i'm talking about but in mexico the x is actually pronounced as a sh so like the place where the oshlodal or the axolotl are living is a place called xochimilco but it's spelled xo like xochimilco so anyway, that's just a little aside for people that don't know what I'm talking about when I say Oshlodal. But the Oshlodal salamander, this is its native environment. And it's basically because of the introduction of exotic tilapia and carp for an attempt by the government at aquaculture food production, the species is like super threatened down there. And then also the pollution, like I was saying, from the slums that are moving in on the chinampas. And so that's where the biofilters are meant to actually create these little like refugia where the axolotl salamanders can breed and survive protected from their exotic predator fish and the pollutants of the area. Hmm. Actually, there's one more, one more just example that's popping in my head. I think when you find these indicator species, right? So the Oshlodal is an indicator of the success of the Chinampas project. It's an indicator of the ecosystem health. The same thing, I can't remember what the fish is called, but they were talking about it in Hawaii. In the Pacific Northwest, we have the salmon, and the salmon basically live their life in the ocean. They're born on land up in you know the mountains. They swim down the stream, they swim out to the ocean, they live out in the ocean, they grow, and then they swim back up to lay their eggs up, you know, in these little mountain streams inland. And they basically sort of like bring this oceanic nutrients back up the ladder, and then they die up in the mountains and they lay their eggs there. Well, there's these fish in Hawaii that were traditionally part of their system that had the opposite, where they would go out to the ocean to like lay their eggs and breed and then they would come back up and live their lives in the streams and the lowy patches like of the Ahupua'a system. 
And so like when you find an indicator species, like that these species are an indicator of an intact system because they have to get all the way from the ocean all the way up to the taro patches located up there. And if you find them up there, then you know that there is enough of a vein of health going on that that system is unbroken. Just like if you have salmon up in a creek, you're like, wow, there's something intact here. The salmon were able to get all the way to their traditional spawning location, you know, from the ocean. So, you know, when you can find some sort of indicator species that indicates the health, it sort of becomes the totem of that particular system. And it's like this connection. You're like, wow, if we can bring back this animal here, this creature, then that represents the health of our whole world, really. So I think that's kind of one way to bring it all together. Mm-hmm. I just want to mention that your videos are incredible incredibly informative and the equipment the way that you explain things the visualization it's impeccable it's really quite fantastic how can people find you well you could certainly see all my videos if you go on youtube and andrew millison's a-n-d-r-e-w-m-i-l-l-i-s-o-n my website just andrewmillison.com has links to all the different things i do also you know like i have this whole online course program through Oregon State University. We teach permaculture design courses. We've been doing that since 2011. So we've basically been developing online courses in permaculture for over a decade. And so we've gotten fairly sophisticated with it. And a lot of the content I produce is essentially I'm producing content for my Oregon State University online courses, but I put my best stuff out to the public in the vein of just free education because I feel like that's really important. And, you know, if anything, we're upping the game right now as far as I am finally have some other people I'm working with now. I did, like, everything myself for the longest time. Now I have some other people helping me with filming and helping me with editing. And, of course, Ben Missimer of Pearl River Eco Design doing the digital animation of, like, watershed stuff. We're kind of pulling out all the stops on this Hawaii video that we're going to do. So I'm hoping to just like actually keep making stuff better because people like you're saying, wow, so impactful. Having the information in an entertaining and detailed way can really shift people's potential to make changes in the real world when they have the right information. So that's pretty much my mission right now is to give people high quality information and storytelling in a sense in order that they can most effectively activate themselves to do the work. That's fantastic. Thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? The Permaculture Water Summit is going to be in a week, which is October 13th through 15th, but I imagine that that this won't come out before then. We basically did about 22 interviews with some of the greatest permaculture water thinkers on the planet. We've got some of the people I mentioned here, like Satyajit Bhaktal, the head of the Pani Foundation, Rajendra Singh, the water man of India, Jeff Lawton, who's one of the most famous you know, permaculture guys on the planet, Ramis Kent, Natalie Topa, Warren Brush, the list goes on. This like total superstars about water and permaculture. And so even though we're going to have the summit, coming up and you're probably going to miss it if you're just listening to this now you will be able to go and see all the recordings we're going to keep them up for free in perpetuity and that is permaculture online. so that's going to be a nice collection of long you know of talks if you want to like spend like 
30 hours thinking about permaculture water, this will be good for you. That's amazing. I'll put all the links in the show notes. Well, thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome. Really appreciated it. My pleasure. As mentioned, the links are in the show notes. Thank you for your patience. The dust has finally begun to settle, so more episodes, greenhouse blog posts, workshops, and music are coming soon. If you want to stay informed, head over to CarmenPorter.com and join my mailing list. Many thanks to all who have taken the time to reach out. It's always lovely to connect with like-minded folk.